the problem I think is would he even care about my suggestion at all? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. if he did, that's cool. But yeah, I think yeah, around 16 or so. So Henry, we have a pact and you're welcome to join. We have all decided that we will force our children to watch a movie with us every week as they get older and they'll hate it eventually, but we will tie them down, yeah. which we can do because we're their parents. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? Forcible restraint. Yeah. yeah. Right. And over time, they're just going to love it, right? Just because it's Stop force yeah. fed. That, that's, that, that's how you get kids to like things, right? Yeah. Like, eventually they'll be like, <laughs> dad. I, in order to enjoy a movie, I really need you to tie me up to the chair. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dark. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> oh, could you imagine like sleepovers be like, oh, yeah, I just can't. I just don't. It doesn't feel right. I'm too free. I, I, I need the eyeball thing. You know, the, <laughs> the, the clockwork orange thing. <laughs> That's really dark. What are you guys doing? <laughs> we are not doing this. This is, a, this is like a bit. It's a My bit. My children watch movies of their own free will. It has so much more say in what they watch than I do. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Mike. And I'm Jesse, and we are the Dad Fathers coming at you with some astrological energy. And today, we've got a very special guest. We've got Henry. Thanks for having me on the show. It's great being here. Of course. Of course. We're yeah. so happy to have you. And Henry, of course, is joining us from the Comic Sauce Podcast. Uh, what do you do over there? Yes, I host and produce the Comic Sauce Podcast. Essentially, we talk comics, TV shows, and movies from a comics fandom perspective. So myself and a number of my friends talk cool comic stuff, basically. There's a lot of like stupid nerd stuff we get into, like trying to decipher the narrative logic of Godzilla versus Kong, stuff like that, you know, so, <laughs> all, all the important things in life, right? Of course, that's us. And, and Vito, you were recently on for what we might see being the best picture of the year. Yeah, right. I, I think I think it is an early front runner. It's it's a it's kind of a Cinderella story, a first time director coming out of the gate with some untested IP. Yeah, it was Mortal Kombat, guys. <laughs> I went and talked and it was a wonderful conversation. And if anyone wants to hear possibly the most earnest, sincere appreciation for Mortal Kombat. I think it's on the Comic Sauce podcast. I think that's where it was. I had a great time. Well, we took a pretty good stab at, at that, for sure. Good conversation. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I remember you You were so fired up to talk Mortal Kombat when, when, the, when the roundtable discussion came back around to you. And you're like, guys, I hate this movie. <laughs> but you had the most articulate... And well-reasoned response to it. I really I really enjoyed hearing that. So if anyone wants to check that out, we're going to circle back around at the end of the episode and kind of replug. But today we're doing something a little different. We, we had you on to talk about this movie. This movie is Zodiac, everyone. We're talking about Zodiac. It's the second in our detective series after Fargo. We're very excited to talk about this movie. So cast and crew, let's talk about who's in this. This is a big one. Okay. It's a big one because just about everyone on screen is somebody. 
kind of where this originated from, this was obviously based upon the book Zodiac by Robert Gray Smith, the character who's the main character in this movie, who worked as a cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle during the Zodiac killings in the late 60s, early 70s. This originated with the producers and writers from Phoenix Pictures. This is uh, Bradley Fisher and James Vanderbilt, who kind of took this together along with all the other producers of the movie. They've all worked together numerous times because of this production company. We're talking Shutter Island, Black Swan, Suspiria, Ready or Not. The producers are Bradley Fisher, Mike Metavoy, Arnold Messer, Lewis Phillips. They've kind of done some solo things as well. Lewis Phillips specifically is doing the Hunger Games. He was an executive in charge of production for things like Black Klansman and upcoming uh, Last Night in Soho. But Jesse, this is for you. Mike Metavoy has worked on a lot of projects, but he also produced Holes. Uh, yes. <laughs> Everybody's a part of Holes in, in one way or another. Everyone, everyone must touch. Now, the last producer and writer is James Vanderbilt. He wanted the rights to this book by Robert Graysmith because he read it in high school and was very, very taken with it, very obsessed with it, as, as he puts it in the making of featurette. He went through the high school serial killer research phase. <laughs> he wanted the rights to this. He couldn't get him because Disney owned them. When they lapsed, he took them over. And they just sort of soft pitched it to David Fincher. Just be like, hey, you worked on Seven. You interested in this? And he's like, absolutely. And then they underwent a year and a half of pre-production where they interviewed literally everyone that touched the Zodiac case. It's wild. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But James Vanderbilt has kind of gone on from this to work on stuff that we probably all know. He started with Basic and The Rundown, uh, doing The Losers, The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, White House Down, Independence Day 2. Not the most stellar of track records, but fairly successful, I would I would say, from a financial standpoint. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like Amazing Spider-Man 2 a, a little bit, like a little bit. No? I, I have no memory of it at all. I saw it with yeah. Jesse. I forgot I had seen it with Jesse. Like <laughs> until, until I brought it up ten years later. Yeah. <laughs> Henry, how, how do you feel about those amazing Spider-Mans or, or any of the other works of James Vanderbilt? Yeah the the Amazing Spider-Man movies to me are fairly forgettable. I mean, they were kind of made just so Sony could retain the Spider-Man license, right? So and they can't they kind of felt that way too, right? That they were just being made so they could exist. Right. Yeah. And to me, it's kind of unfortunate because I know that Andrew Garfield is like a huge Spider-Man fan. Like he grew up reading Spider-Man comics and he got to live his dream, right? But he just so happened to be in the two Spider-Man movies, which were like kind of lame. Um that's <laughs> funny, you know, you mentioned kind of liked uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, because that one is like kind of hated by yeah. pretty much everyone. Yep. But actually, I, I didn't like completely hate it. I think I had such yeah. low expectations that I actually kind of dug parts of it. I would say that's a very accurate summation of my own feelings as well. I have very controversial feelings when it comes to Spider-Man movies. <laughs> I, I feel like it's uh, it's it's very expected, though. The one that people like the least, you were, you were going to like the most. Yeah, not I didn't like it the most. Obviously not. Um, but I do like it more, I think, than most people. But I think it's kind of what Henry's saying. There's a couple really standout things I enjoyed. Yeah. But overall, kind of not. I, I know it doesn't work. You know, yeah, but I mean the the web going down to save Gwen. Yeah, that's ah, come on, that's iconic. It's it's a great scene. It's a great scene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 
It's a great scene. We can say that. It's a great scene. So uh, moving away from James Vanderbilt, though, I think I really do want to mention the cinematography by Harris Savitas, who passed in October of 2012 at the age of 55. One of his last projects was The Bling Ring for Sofia Coppola. He also worked with her on Somewhere. He also shot uh, American Gangster. He did The Game with Fincher. Music videos for R.E.M., Madonna, Michael Jackson, The Rolling Stones, Tony Braxton, Fiona Apple. <laughs> like he, he shot for a lot of very, very famous people on some of their better songs too. Like R.E.M., he did Everybody Hurts. For Madonna, he did Rain, Human Nature, Bedtime Stories. Michael Jackson with Janet Jackson, he did Scream. Like these are pretty well-known songs. Um, and he was a very respected cinematographer. I think he, he passed a little bit too young. But let's get into our cast. All right. Starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Everyone, you know him. Everyone has opinions on Jake Gyllenhaal. The Gyllenhaal he's siblings. He's, he's great. great. We, I think he's great. Do it, people not think he's great? I think he's kind of polarizing. Really? It, is he polarizing? Do you guys he, think? I have no idea. I have, <laughs> is, is, I'm so out of the loop when it comes to general perceptions of how actors are viewed. I'm going to say everybody says this guy's great. Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Henry, Henry, do you feel polarized by Jake Gyllenhaal? Uh, I wouldn't say polarized. I would say, you know, he's not the type of actor where, like, if I know he's in a in a movie, I'm like, oh, I have to see this movie because Jake Gyllenhaal is in it. He doesn't have that kind of draw for me. But when he's great, he's really great. I mean, we're going to talk about Zodiac, but Zodiac, Brokeback Mountain, and, like, Nightcrawler. Like, wow. He's just, yeah. like, phenomenal. Uh, again, yeah. He's not like the name draw, like I'm gonna I have to see all these movies, but yeah, like when when he's great, he's really great. Yeah, I, I, I agree with those calling out those three. I also really liked him and you know he's 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 a good I think he's a pretty good take on Mysterio. Not a lot in Spider-Man Far From Home works for me, but I really liked him in that. But then uh we got Everest, we got prisoners. I love him in prisoners. Yeah. Um he's great in that. Yeah, end of watch broke my heart. Broke my heart and had to watch Nocturnal Animals. Nocturnal I mean, animals. what a oh, yeah. crazy movie that is, but he did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we've known him for a long time, right? Yeah. He's in Day After Tomorrow, Donnie Darko, That's October wild. Sky. He's been around yeah. for most of our lives. Only one Academy Award nomination, Brokeback Mountain for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. He's um, probably best known, though, for his bit role in a very special film by a very special comedian that we all know and love, right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're referring to John Mulaney's Sack Lunch Bunch, where he plays the music man. Did you guys see this? No. This is the weirdest, like... Nope, never seen that one. Has, it's on Netflix. He, he's in it for about seven minutes, where he has to come on, and he does a musical number in full music man regalia. And it's so funny. Even if you don't watch the special, just, like... Try and find this on YouTube. It, I, I was crying with laughter. He's saying that you can find music everywhere. And he comes up with the worst examples of things that make noise, like laundry falling into a hamper. <laughs> and you can extrapolate music from that. <laughs> it's really funny. Check it out. It's funnier when you see it than when Vito explains it. That's um, why I just did the one. <laughs> <laughs> what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed I, to you, do? You I, do? I have to talk. You, you do. Yeah. <laughs> We got Mark Ruffalo. He's next. He's obviously the Hulk for the MCU. Um, better than Ed Norton and Eric Bana, do you guys think? I mean, I mean, yes. I'm, a, I'm a big Ed Norton fan, so he's not better than him, but he's he's great. He, I mean, he's a great Hulk. Like he's, I feel like he's a better Hulk than Ed Norton. Yeah, I don't know, but I love Ed Norton. Don't don't say anything vaguely, even possibly negative, surrounding characters that he could play. 
<laughs> it's true. It's true. He does his best behind that wall of green screen. But Henry, as as the comic expert here, weigh in. I love your pick, Jesse. Um, <laughs> that popular, like most people, I think would pick Ruffalo as as their Hulk. But I'm Team Norton, man. I love Ed Norton yeah. as wow. Bruce Banner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very nice. I have a lot of love in my heart for Eric Bana in that 2003 Hulk. That's one of the very first PG-13 movies I saw on screen. And it just, yeah, I love it. It makes, it makes me, it makes me like emotional when I watch that, which, you know, as per the course movie, isn't that great, but (laughs) (laughs) we're going to a lot of Marvel movies today. Yeah. I'm having to like steamroll and like move through these, especially for these three. I know they're huge. Like these, this movie is huge. Yeah. There's so many people in this movie. There's another big one. Who's part of the MCU. Who's also in this movie. Exactly. I'm getting there. Hold your horses. Mark Ruffalo here. He's nominated three times for an Academy Award supporting actor. The kids are all right. Foxcatcher and Spotlight, where he's fantastic, fantastic in Spotlight. The Ringer on the Rewatchables named an entire award for overacting after Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight. (laughs) It's the They Knew Award, and it's it's very well deserved. (laughs) Finally, though, we're getting to Jesse's previously mentioned Robert Downey Jr., and this catches him at a really cool point in his career. Yeah. Right? Like he starts to sober up in the early 2000s because he's he's going off the rails. He's kind of at rock bottom, as he described later on in his career. And in fact, he's uninsurable, unable to be bonded for movies. He can't actually be in movies until Mel Gibson paid for him to be in The Singing Detective out of his own pocket, which kind of gets him back in the fold a little bit. And then we get stuff like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in 2005, but I really think that it's it's Zodiac that kind of tells everyone Downey's back because the next year we get Tropic Thunder and Iron Man all in one go. And then Downey's on top of the world. Right. He's yeah. the biggest guy ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what are your what are your thoughts on on Downey? I thought it was pretty clear watching this. It's like, yeah, this is why they chose him to play like the Iron Man character. He is. The, he just plays that character in Zodiac. And then they just bring that along yeah. to the ride. And he's a uh, man. What a great pick. The RDJ in Zodiac does resemble the Tony Stark character a lot, right? He's he's kind of this boozy wisecracker, you know, but at the same time, it's a it's different, too, because whereas in the MCU, he's like he's always like the smartest guy in the room in Zodiac. He's not right. There are scenes with him and Gyllenhaal where he's kind of like, how does one do that? Like he's asking him how to figure stuff out, right? Uh, so kind of an interesting dynamic. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, like he's he's uh, super arrogant and he's a big, big time wisecracker, but he's not he's not super smart, you know? And that, that feels weird because he is super smart as Tony Snark, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it really felt uh, like he should be flying around in a suit that he invested. Then you're like, oh, yeah, wait, wait. No, this guy's actually dumb. He's taken down a few notches. All right, cool. <laughs> now I can get back into the movie. Yeah, that was an adjustment. <laughs> just me having to sort of think, oh, wait, wait. He's not super brilliant this time. He's not that guy. I think what's what's so funny, too, looking at Downey's career, you know, he, he gets started so young on everything so young. He said that he first smoked marijuana when he was six with his dad gets started drinking in his early, early teens, like 12. 
and he, he just starts hard, but he, he also has a lot of like natural talent. I mean, he's in the cast of Saturday Night Live. He gets an Academy Award nomination for Chaplin back in like 1992. Um, then he works with like Robert Altman. He works with Oliver Stone. He, he's just in a ton of stuff and then tanks. But it's not even that long before when he tanks and when he comes back, it's like six years. And then all of a sudden Downey's back on top and still though, only with two Academy Award nominations. Chaplin and Tropic Thunder, which is a bizarre two-hander. Yep. You want a weird double feature? That's a weird double feature. <laughs> there you go. So speeding through the rest of the cast, I'm just going to name some people. We got Anthony Edwards, Goose from Top Gun. Yeah. Goose is here. Yeah, that's wild. That's so, <laughs> when I realized that, that, that this was Goose, I, it, just, it blew my mind. In my mind. <laughs> Apparently Fincher cast him because he was his neighbor. Oh, really? Yeah. Just his neighbor. Really? Yeah. <laughs> just that he, he thought of like the most decent person that he could think of. He was like, oh, it's just that guy that lives next to me. <laughs> <laughs> we got Brian Cox playing Melvin Belli, right? Mm -hmm. Succession fame. Yeah, previous succession. episode, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, yeah. John Carroll Lynch. Previous episode, Trial of Chicago 7. He's good in it. <laughs> he is very good in that movie. Yes. He does a good job in, in that movie. And... The previous episode, he's he's Norm. He is Norm. Yeah. That's right. He's, he's Norm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> he's Norm from Fargo, which is, at the time of the release of this recording, going to be the episode prior. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Tying our detective series together is John Carroll Lynch. Norm. Yep. John Carroll Lynch, yeah. I wonder if he's going to be in the rest of them. I know. Wouldn't that be really funny? Because <laughs> he is sort of that guy. He, he, I mean, so many people in this movie are like, oh, that guy. Yeah. And he's one of those that guys, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and yeah, yeah. So we also got uh, just a speed round. Chloe Sevigny, Elias Codius, Dermot Mulroney, Donald Logue, Philip Baker Hall, Jimmy Simpson, Adam Goldberg, <laughs> Clea Duvall. And that's just like the people that I just picked. There's more people in this movie. Yeah. But I got tired of clicking on links to follow actors' filmographies. I got, I got really tired. <laughs> That's why. I, is there anyone in particular you guys want to shout out? Henry, Jesse? Uh, nope. You mentioned Jimmy Simpson. I, I think he's in exactly one scene in this movie, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess he's probably best known for Westworld now, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're in one scene in this movie, he's, he's in one hell of a scene, right? Where yeah. he actually essentially like identifies the Zodiac, right? Yeah. Very powerful scene. So pretty cool that he only appears once and it's like, it's a home run basically. Yep. Yeah. He has like three minutes to hammer this movie home and it's the final scene and he's playing the real life Mike Bajot, the survivor of the opening killing of yeah. the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really powerful. It's funny seeing him here and then thinking back to when he's in like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia oh as one of the McPoyle brothers. <laughs> what was he doing? Did he go straight from Always Sunny to this or had he done a couple of other things? No, he did this and then he went to It's Always Sunny. Oh, really? I believe so. Weird. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. You will call her! <laughs> I love It's Always Sunny. <laughs> All right, that kind of wraps it up for me with the exception of talking about David Fincher. David Fincher. It's a big one. Yeah, he is. We've done a lot of like iconic directors, one movie of iconic directors, Wes Anderson, Tarantino, Nolan. But talking about Fincher, maybe, Mike, you had this question. Yeah, so I, I haven't seen a ton of, uh, I've seen, I don't know, like I think four, maybe five movies that, that he's made. 
And I've been kind of wondering, like, what makes a David Fincher movie? Because they're all kind of, in some ways, they're all over the place, like Seven and Fight Club. But there's a lot of similarities there. And then we've got The Social Network, we've got Zodiac, and we've got Mank, which are, at least in terms of subject matter, pretty much all over the place. And then I, I really love Mindhunter, the show, uh, where I see like similar threads connecting to each of the different things that I've seen by him. I know that both you, Vito, and you, Henry, are, are you're huge Fincher fans. So I, I feel like, I, I don't know, I feel like I see some connections, but it's hard for me to be like, oh yeah, David Fincher is a guy I like. Like the Coen brothers. There, I know if it's a Coen brothers movie, I know what I'm going to get. And I know that I like that. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I know what I'm going to get when I sit down for a Fincher movie in the same way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Jesse, uh, do, do you share a similar feeling with Mike? Well, I think I know what I'm going to get. I usually have a preconceived notion of what I'm walking into with the Fincher movie, which is like, it's going to be about some character that he's dived into. And it's like this, the dark, gritty parts of this, of the guy who usually has like something kind of wrong with them or many characters that have something kind of wrong with them. And like just the weird obsessions that make them tick. And then the whole movie is going to be about that and highlighting that in the biggest way possible. That's usually what I get out of David Fincher movies, social network, seven fight club, even Mank. It's about like this guy who's got some crazy issues and then blowing that all up for the audience to see. That's what I see a David Fincher movie as, and as well as adjectives such as kind of depressing and kind of dark, which are very vague adjectives that I don't like to use too often. <laughs> but that's also what I associate Fincher with. How do you see it, Henry? Yeah, I, I like that take from you, Jesse. Yeah, darkness, I think, is a good description of Fincher's movie. I do agree that he's not like, tied down to one single genre, like his filmography kind of spans multiple genres. Yeah. But in general, there is darkness. And the only thing I would add to that is not only is it like thematic darkness, but actually like aesthetic darkness, right? His movies tend to be kind of Mm. dimly lit, right? So uh, if there is a, like a visual like motif, that might be it. Like, it's just kind of that lack of light, you know? Um, Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, and again, the the subject matter tends to be on the dark side. So get get ready for some the depressing stuff, some some dark stuff, some violent stuff. It, it, that's definitely uh, trademark Fincher territory. That's interesting. Well, it's interesting like this compared to Seven. I feel like that's that's a there's a really clear line to draw there, and also Mindhunter, because. Both in Seven and Mindhunter, they're they're very concerned with like what's actually happening in in like the violent crimes. In this one, it shows the the violence, but it's really not concerned with it at all. Yeah, which I, I just found really kind of fascinating that the same guy made these three different things mm-hmm. um, that are very different, although they're about the same the same thing. But that makes sense that at least like in terms of in terms of the cinematography or whatever. They're close. They're very. They're, they all feel close. You're. You kind of feel like you're in a dark room, a lot of shadows, but the light is beautiful. It's almost like a Renaissance painting, mm-hmm. yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool take, Mike. The comparison between Seven and this movie Zodiac, because they're both about serial killers, right? 
But yeah. I mean, completely different movies. It's almost like Seven is is like the spectacle of a serial killer, whereas this is everything's been kind of toned down, right? It's it's more about the conversations and the investigation than it is about the actual violence and the shock of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's only Absolutely. really like yeah. three violent scenes, what you could what, on screen violence, mm-hmm. right? The opening shooting of the the lovers on Lover's Lane. And then we have the stabbing at the lake and then the killing of the cabbie. And then the violence is pretty much done about 45 minutes into the movie. Yeah. You don't really see anything else. Then it's just atmosphere and foreboding. And I, I kind of have a, an interesting idea about this. So, so with what you're saying, Mike, going from Seven to Zodiac to Mindhunter, this is where he's obsessed with the serial killer, right? Right. And there's a very gradual progression there that you see of going from the side of, you know, this is like a very kind of crazy, cool cop thriller to this being much more of a procedural detective story to Mindhunter, which is, it's all after the fact. Everything is is done years after these killers are away. And yeah. it's about trying to understand them. And I see a very natural, like one, two, three stepping mm-hmm. stone there. But in terms of what you're saying, Jesse, and, and some of what you, you all three are echoing is like, Looking at the rest of his movies, in between Zodiac and Mindhunter, we have Girl with Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl, which are two of his like most violent, most like fucked up movies, yeah. where the worst stuff happens, and he really seems to like kind of revel in that pulpy B material. But then you get Mank. Like, what the hell is Mank? <laughs> what is it doing here? It's the movie that he's been waiting to make his whole career, right? Mm-hmm. Like how weird that this guy made that movie. Yeah. And I guess it's just because his, his dad wrote the script and he he felt such an attachment to it. But I, I kind of feel like David Fincher can be classed and there's his movies can be put into classes. You know, we have stuff like fight club gone girl and panic room. And those kind of go into like, these are the really wild, strange David Fincher. But then we have more meditative stuff like curious case of Benjamin button or this or uh make, and even a little bit like Social Network, they can kind of be in their own class too. And if you look at some of his producing stuff, like he produced like Love, Death and Robots, which is just a bonkers show on Netflix. Yeah. It's insane. Um, I, I, I agree with pretty much everything you guys are saying here. David Fincher is like the guy that I got excited to learn about for the first time when it came to movies. Yeah. I got excited to learn. Gore Verbinski was like the stepping stone in and then it's David Fincher. <laughs> there's a there's cool. a quote from a New York Times profile um, that was just done in, in November. This is a quote from it. The fundamental formal pleasure of watching a Fincher film is that every last micron of the experience has been considered and then reconsidered with an abundance of love, skill, and precision. And that's always what I enjoy in a David Fincher movie. Even if I'm not as big of a fan of the material, I always feel like the guy who made this cared every second he was on set. And that experience has been given to me. I, I really love that. Yeah. I, I love a quote uh, that, that he said, no, no, I'm not a perfectionist, essentially. There's just a difference between mediocre and acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> said the perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> just love that. As weird as it is to say about a movie like uh, like Fight Club or Seven, even, mm-hmm. they're all slow burn character dramas. Mm-hmm. Like, even Fight Club, maybe. Yeah, I don't know that's that's a bit of a. a I mean, a you don't one. get the final realization about the main character until yeah. like two thirds of the way through the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, like as I'm trying to think about it, like think about what I think this is, what I think he makes. It's like they're very, you know, they're dark, they're close, 
and they're very like focused on they they linger on people's faces. They do. Yeah, there's a lot of CGI in this in this movie Zodiac, but it's always in in weird places that you wouldn't expect it to be. It's yeah. a lot of CGI buildings <laughs> and backgrounds and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But it's clear that the spectacle that he wants is the story, is these characters. Yeah, I, I love that about him, That's Jesse. Cool. Do, do you do you agree with that take? That these are all character dramas. Yeah, yeah. At, at the heart, I think he cares about the messed up people, and he cares about. It almost seems like he just cares like. Not putting exceptional or people in like exceptional circumstances, but having an exceptional person in weird circumstances. Like almost every single one of his movies I can think of, it's always about like some sort of like somebody who seems like he's got something wrong with him. Like Jake Gyllenhaal, it's not the Zodiac Killer in this one. I think Zodiac Killer is like what makes this movie a whole, but like the main focus is Jake Gyllenhaal slowly slipping into some sort of insanity, like trying to figure out this crime. Mm. I think he's like the main crutch of that. And that this movie's about him. It's about that character going through this. So yeah, I, I get the character drama, David Fincher movies spin. I like that. What do you think, Henry? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you guys. Uh, you know, as brilliant as Fincher is, I think he, he kind of, he has a pretty, classic take on filmmaking and that's tell a story people care about and develop characters that the audience cares about you know do do we care about this story do we care about these characters and pretty much every single one of these movies the answer is yes right uh, so he he places effort in those those categories that that mean the most i think yeah i i think well said well said on all those all right, so maybe talking about nostalgia, first impressions. Um, I think for me, watching this, this is I, this is one of my very favorite movies of all time. I've seen this movie a ton. I love this movie so much. And I actually love most of David Fincher's movies a lot. I've seen everything he's done at least twice with the exception of Mank. And for things like The Social Network, I've seen him upwards of like 15 times. But a lot of my nostalgia goes back to one summer when I was a teenager where I had a friend who would used to live around my town and he moved away, but he'd come back in the summers. And what we do in the summers is we would go out, we had this trailer and we would run an extension cord to the trailer and then we'd fill it with like snacks. I had a grill. We were on my family's kind of big ranch style place. We were parked way out in the corner of it with this lone extension cord going in. And we had a DVD player and a TV. We had this grill. We had all these snacks, like all this stuff. And we would just spend weekends out there just watching movies, talking about movies, eating like cold hot dogs that we grilled two days ago, <laughs> just like mm. living like animals. Mm. But it was just about the movies. Uh, and yeah. it was just about how many movies can we stack in oh to a set amount of time. That's amazing. And just Fincher like was how many hot dogs you can also stuff into your mouth. <laughs> so it was like a full, a full sausage party, if you will. It was. it was literally a party about sausages because we were really hungry at certain points and just had to eat whatever we had. Nice. But I remember we watched, I don't know, I think we watched five Fincher movies that summer. And this was the summer pre-2007. So the next summer when he came back, we were able to watch Zodiac. And I just have very, really intense memories of seeing Fight Club 7 and Zodiac in those two summers like when I watch these movies, I can I can feel what it was like back either out there in that trailer or in his mom's basement. 
and remember what we thought of it. Like I remember seeing seven for the first time and <laughs> seven, we were like 14, seven freaked us out so much that we're standing outside of the trailer watching the TV <laughs> at the end of it. <laughs> oh my God. And it was like broad daylight. Wow. <laughs> um, but this one, that movie is messed up, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a messed up movie. I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> and that stepping stone in, like me, me and, and this friend of mine, we would just go back and forth talking about what is it that Fincher's doing? Like, how do we make a movie like this? What's happening in it? And that's really where, I, if I can point back to where my love of film and wanting to talk about it, it's there, and it's talking about Fincher. Yeah, awesome. sorry. I just wanted to go first because that's yeah, that's, that's a story awesome. I've been wanting to tell for a really long time. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think? Fincher feelings right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that's the way you're supposed to feel. I feel like he he would appreciate that. I think so. Yeah, I, I don't have a ton of nostalgia for this or for for Fincher specifically at, at all. I watched this. I don't know a couple of years ago, kind of catching up. I remember when it came out. And it was when I had that friend in high school. I was not that guy in high school, but I had that friend who was obsessed with uh, serial killers Mm -hmm. and learning about them. And he's a great guy. He read this book and then this movie came out and he was stoked about it. So he went to go see it. But I was going to boarding school, Mm -hmm. which is a thing that people still do. uh, (laughs) It didn't end in the 40s or something like that. So I couldn't go with him. And so I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it because I was like, oh, this is this is the movie that I want to watch with myself. But uh, but then so I finally caught up on it. It was weird to me because I heard about it. I was like, oh, it's it's a serial killer movie, but it's not really a serial killer movie. It's more about like the everything that went al- along around it. Learned a little bit about the Zodiac killer, a little, little bit about how that was in San Francisco. And yeah, so I was really excited to see it. Finally saw it and enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it's a good movie. Yeah, that's my not nostalgia nostalgia for it. <laughs> nice, that's Jesse. Non nostalgia. Do, do you have deep? Do you have deep <laughs> nostalgia for it, or are you going to rhyme with Mike? Uh, I think I have the opposite of deep nostalgia for this movie. So this is post two thousand seven. Whenever it was that it was available for rent, and my dad rented it, I walked in somewhere in the second half of the movie, and he's watching it. I was so bored. I was just so intensely bored from this movie. This movie, like I've hated this movie for a long time because I just thought it's the most bored. I couldn't figure out why people liked it. Like it's, I, I remember a bridge. I remember San Francisco. I remember people being like worked up to find a killer. And it's like, well, where's the killer? You know, what's the big deal guys? Why are, what, why are we here? So <laughs> I have anti-nostalgia for this movie. And then I watched it. I, I just realized the other day, when I watched it that I'd never really seen it in full or even remembered any single part of it. So I had this really strong anti-nostalgia for a movie that I had never really seen because I don't remember it. And it's great. This movie's great. Yeah. I really <laughs> like this movie now. So I, I am happy to say that I really like this movie now. Uh, I'm happy to finally watch it all the way through and not think of it as a, a boring piece of whatever. That's really funny. Like, I, I can't imagine this movie is so reliant on the tension that it builds, like in the first half of the movie. I can see how it would be extremely boring without it. <laughs> like <laughs> why do they why does this guy care so much? Like yeah. I couldn't figure it out. I yeah. That's that's interesting. That, that's my anti-nostalgia for this movie. Nice. <laughs> what about uh, you, Henry? Uh yeah. Uh I do love this 
movie very much also. Yeah, when I first saw it, really enjoyed it. Pretty cool. Like I said, that it's a pre-MCU RDJ here. Also cool that, like we kind of like what we've been saying, it's it gets better over time, right? Initially, I didn't hate it, like you were saying, Jesse, but I didn't <laughs> love it, love it, you know? Um, I thought, wow, this movie's a little slow. And for a movie about a serial killer, there's not a whole lot of action or horror, you know? Which is kind of what I was expecting, right? But then over time, you realize, well, that, that's kind of, it wasn't what Fincher was going for, right? He was going for something very, very different. And uh, yeah, like I said, I think it just gets better over time. And yeah, I, I, I was really kind of comparing it to his previous work, like, you know, like I guess Seven and Fight Club in particular. And I felt like those movies were just kind of viscerally more exciting, right? So I thought that's just good, but it's not great. But now it's definitely like, I think it's among his best. Uh, mm-hmm. Fincher's best, absolutely. As as far as nostalgia, I do have some nostalgia for this movie in kind of a different way. I am a San Francisco Bay Area native, and my dad subscribed to the San Francisco Chronicle. So every morning we would get like the paper. We're talking a real real paper, <laughs> not internet wow. news, right? <laughs> he would give me the entertainment section and the sports section. And he would read like the front page and, and the business section. Right. So like little things like early on in the movie, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is saying, Oh, crime news. Yeah. Janice from date book left the fondue party before everyone got naked. Right. (laughs) The date book is the entertainment section of the Chronicle that that section that I read every morning, you know, I read the movie news and and, and the TV (laughs) news and stuff. So just like little things like that, like brought back like old nice memories. Right. They mentioned Herb Cain. I think um, Robert Gray Smith has mentioned the Herb Cain article. Uh, I didn't read that, but like my dad read that all the time, I think. So yeah, definitely like nostalgia vibes for, for the local flavor there. That's nice. cool. Henry, my my family's originally from San Francisco. I I uh I lived there at briefly at different points because my family moved a lot as a kid. Oh cool. So like watching this movie is is so much fun to be like, oh like I kinda know like I know this city. Like I know and the Washington Examiner, my grandfather got all of the papers. Um <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of them. Nice. Herb Kane was a name that's like, oh, I know that name. It was like thrown around. I was like, a, I don't know, five. I'm like, that's a name. I have no idea why, but it just like comes back out of the the the, the ether of, of childhood. But I felt the same way. It's so it's it's really cool to to see that and to think about, too, like he worked in downtown. He was a lawyer. So like he would have been around this stuff when it was going on and uh, yeah. it would have affected him like my mom was going to school when they have like the school, the school bus concerns. She doesn't remember it hmm. at all. It would have been something that, that they would have been concerned about. It's just kind of wild to wild to see it that way. You know? Yeah. The Bay area vibes run deep in this movie. Like you mentioned Fincher himself is from the Bay area and there's just little cool things. Like um, they go see dirty Harry, right? Dirty Harry is based in San Francisco. Um, they mentioned they compared a uh, Toski to Bullet, you know, Bullet, another San Francisco based movie. So, yeah, there's so many cool little like 
shout outs there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fun fact too, apparently both Bullet and Dirty Harry were based off of uh David Toshi. Mm-hmm. So like oh, his yeah. detective in this movie, like the real guy, that's that's why the, those movies exist because of this one detective who tried to hunt Zodiac. That's awesome. Yeah, Dave Dave Chosky is a is a legend. A bow tie wearing legend who respects due <laughs> yeah. process. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> such um, a great line. Also, that's another really cool. fun fact. He's name dropped in Star Wars. When what? Luke Skywalker Luke Skywalker wants to go to Tashi Station to pick up power converters. Oh wait, no, there's no way. There is, yeah. there is. It was because of him? <laughs> yeah. He named it after after him. Because <laughs> because I'm fl- I'm flabbergasted. George I am this is, is a California guy. <laughs> I, I am literally flabbergasted. My my gasted my gasts are flabbergasted. Flabbered, yeah. <laughs> it sounds so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. Yeah. Nice. Um. All right. Well, then I guess we can move over to a quick question here. When slash will we show this? to our kids. I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to say, um, you know, probably, you know, trying to break these down, you know, I got to start all the way back with alien three with my daughter. So it's going to take us a little bit to build up to this one, but like, (laughs) well, if you're going through seven before you get here, like, like you won't have any worries about like fears. Oh no, 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 completely shatter. This will be an easier night than that. It'll be like the bedtime story. Oh yeah. I mean, she'll probably be bored. Yeah. yeah, she'd be like, what is this? No. <laughs> but I think I think definitely I will be doing this one. But it's it's going to be, I think I'm going to say 16, 17, because even though there is not much violence, the violence that is there is quite strong. And and not, it's not cool, quote unquote. It's not fun. It's not awesome. It's brutal. And it's terrifying. And yeah. and at times deeply, deeply sad, because he does like to stick with the survivor. You know, after the stabbing at the lake, you know, we see that man, Brian Hartnell, who is sitting, you know, covered with the blanket, covered in blood, sitting in the truck, just completely broken as a person. This really brings home that violence. But actually, I really like that about it. I like that it treats violence with the appropriate gravity. It doesn't make it extravagant. It doesn't make it something that should be praised. You know, these are deeply horrific things that happen to real people. And for that reason, I would say probably 16, 17. I, I I want it to be you know, impactful. Yeah. What, what, what do you think, Mike? I think this is something that I want to show to them. I think it's, I mean, it's a fantastic movie and it hits on all the sort of, sort of things that I, I think of like, what, like what, what I like to show my kids. I, I like uh, the idea, you know, I, the things that I think about, like, what did my, you know, the people in my life, what did they show to me? It's a great movie from for its time. It's about, an extremely important historical event. You know, it's about, you know, people trying to, to do the right thing. I think that all those things make me want to show it to them, but it is like, this is, this is some subject matter guys. Like this is some tough stuff. I think, uh, especially, I mean, we're, you know, we're not really a, a spoiler free show. You know, we're probably going to be getting further and further into spoilers as this goes, but Shocking. You know, but absolutely. If you shocking. haven't seen the movie, I don't know why you're listening to this. Um, but like, you know, like like with the mom and her kid, like that's that's pretty horrific and terrifying. Even though you know it's fine, and like with the violence, it, like you said, it, it's very really violent. I, I was thinking about that with like the way um, 
I think Henry, you were saying it, it almost like zooms out. Like all of this movie is tight. Like everything's tight. You're close with the characters except for the violent scenes. Mm-hmm. And it zooms out. And most movies like this, you expect it to be cinematic the way that the violence is shown. Like it's going to be, they're going to use the, the camera to make it seem like, to make you feel what it would feel like for this to happen. But no, this makes you feel like you're watching it happen. Yeah. And that's almost more horrific because you're expecting one thing, something else happens. And then it's, Oh, like this is how it actually occurs. So I, I, I don't know. Yeah, definitely, definitely older. Um, 16, 17, 18 when we'll probably watch it is my guess. Yeah. What about you, Henry? This is an interesting question. Yeah. Cool to uh, speak with fellow dads here because yeah. like people I talk to other dads, like I I don't think the topic of when are we going to introduce a David Fincher movie to our children <laughs> has ever or will ever come up. You know, it's, it's, it's weird. Like we talk about like, Oh, when are you going to show, show star Wars to your kid? Or when are you going to show superhero movies? That sort of thing never occurred to me <laughs> to, to even think about this. So, but now that the question has been posed, yeah, I would say, you know, 16 ish range. My thought though is, like at that age, I would think my kid would want to have nothing to do with me or my movie suggestions, you know? <laughs> so so I, the, the answer is yes. Like I would show this to my son when he's of age, you know, 16 or so. It's a great movie. Like I said, the, the Bay Area vibes are cool. It's like, oh, hey, this is how it was around here way back when, you know? Of course, yeah. Of course, I would love to introduce this movie to him. The problem, I think, is would he even care about my suggestion at all? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. if he did, that's cool. But yeah, I think yeah, around 16 or so. So, Henry, we have a pact and you're welcome to join. We have all decided that we will force our children to watch <laughs> a movie with us every week as they get older. And they'll hate it eventually, but we will tie them down. Yeah. Which we can do because we're their parents. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? Forcible restraint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And over time, they're just going to love it, right? Just because it's Stop being force yeah. fed. That, that's, that, that's how you get kids to like things, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, eventually, they'll be like, <laughs> Dad, I, in order to enjoy a movie, I really need you to tie me up to the chair. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dark. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, could you imagine like sleepovers be like, oh, yeah, I just can't. I just don't. It doesn't feel right. I'm too free. I I need the eyeball thing. You know, the The, the clockwork orange thing. (laughs) That's really dark. What are you guys doing? We are not doing this. This is is like a bit. It's a bit. My children watch movies of their own free will. It has so much more say in what they watch than I do uh, this afternoon. Like, like I walk out of, of my my home office to be like, hey, kids, do you want to watch something? And they're watching Peppa Pig. Uh-huh. And so I sat down and got a nice little nap. It was great. <laughs> it was really good. Dude, I love taking that nap and they're just watching the the Peppa Pig or like Puff and Rock. My kids watch Puff and Rock. It's I like so Puff peaceful. and Rock. It's just, yeah, yeah, it just puts me right to sleep. Nice. Nice. Jesse, sorry. What, when are, are are you going to show this to your kids at all? Oh yeah, I'm going to show. Tie them. him down. I'm going to. Uh, I I hope not. Well, that's what the pitch it section is for, which that's we're going right. to do pretty soon. Yeah. Before we get to that, I just want to say, yeah, I'm going to rhyme with all you guys. Say 16, 17, both because 
I don't think if they're younger, they're really going to be that interested. This is like an older person movie. You're going to be bored on your mind like I was. It's not even so much the violence that's disturbing. It's the fact that it's real. That's how it comes across to me. It's like, you know, I've seen way more disturbing scenes in movies before, but this, this happened to these people, which is, I think, I think that's part of the reason why the violence in this movie is restrained. I think it's like to, to respect what has happened to others because these are only murders that happen to the survivors, right? They never show murders that happen when there isn't a survivor on screen. Yeah. These are the stories as they have heard them and they're trying to make it as accurate as possible, which makes it more frightening for anybody younger. Like I don't, I don't want to instill in my kids the sense that the world is full of people like this because these people do exist, but they are still outliers. Right. And that's a, an older kid concept. 16, 17. So, yeah, that's when I'm going to show it to him. Would you like to pitch it, Jesse? Pitch it. Pitch it. Pitch it. Okay. Pitch it. This is a movie about a serial killer. A serial killer that was real. Went up and down California killing people and to this day has not been caught. At least that's what I hope I'm going to be able to say when they're 16, 17. (laughs) Or maybe he will be caught. Sorry, that was a weird sidebar. Anyway, hasn't been caught. He sent out these codes to the newspaper, and no one was able to solve them until 50 years later in December of 2020. Right? Like, this is crazy. Like, he's communicating to the press, and it's about trying to find out who this is, and this movie says that there is an answer for it. Do you want to watch that? Mm. It's a good pitch. It is a good pitch. I like yeah. that. I'd watch it. I'd watch that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I already have. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch it again. <laughs> You'd watch it again no matter what. That's true. That's true. I, I, I'm an easy sell. Henry, what, how would you pitch this? Yeah, I was thinking of taking a certain angle. So uh, quite simply, I'd ask my son, do you consider yourself a real Bay Area native? Do you consider yourself a real movie fan. Well, if you haven't seen this movie, you cannot consider yourself either of those things. (laughs) Period. And just leave it at that. It's kind of tough love, but you know, I think that, I think that would be my best shot at getting him to watch this movie. (laughs) That's awesome. Rise to the challenge. Yes. Yeah. I like it. That's great. That would work. Too, especially for like a, a snotty sixteen-year-old, they'd be like, "Yeah, I've already seen it." And then they go like watch it by themselves in their room. Exactly. <laughs> I, have to, great. I have to excuse myself for two hours and forty-five minutes. I'll be right back. <laughs> oh, that was great. Yeah. How would you pitch it, Mike? I'm think. Oh, I think I might go the opposite route. I might be like, um, okay, this movie is the story of obsession about how obsession can destroy your life, but is also extremely important. Do you want to learn about that? Eh, I don't know. No, because I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, I've already seen The Prestige. <laughs> we already talked about it. And Mank. And yeah. Mank. And Social Network. <laughs> That's a lot of Fincher movies right there. It's a lot of Fincher movies right there. This- this is a movie about a serial killer where he doesn't ever make an appearance. There we go. That's a better one. Ah, there we go. That's, that's the cool. one I want. 
Nice. Yeah. Uh, my, mine is simply going to be, uh, do you want your inheritance? <laughs> <laughs> Boom. This is a David Fincher movie. We're watching it. <laughs> the inheritance is a hundred copies of uh, the social uh, network Zodiac on Blu-ray. Yeah. Which actually, if I had a hundred copies of Zodiac on Blu-ray back in 2008, when it was released on Blu-ray, I would have so much money. There was a Blu-ray shortage for this movie. Oh. Secondhand copies were like, like a hundred bucks on eBay. The only way I got one is it's German. <laughs> I got a oh. German Blu-ray. Cause that's the only way I could own this. Nice. So, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. Like, I just wow. I just read that, and then and I remember. Why did it from that back then. happen? They just didn't make enough of them. Because huh. there, there's been a couple releases of this. There there's a longer director's cut version that was screened for a couple of rewards considerations. So they uh-huh. busted out the Blu-ray real quick, not a ton of special features, and then a couple years following, there was a re-release. But it's that initial release in the first year. That is really hard to find. Was, was it backed up at the Blu-ray factory? I, I have no <laughs> idea how this works, but like, it seems the guy like he was pretty... stamping, got tired. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the guy who etches all the lines. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Sick of this. I'm gonna I'm gonna start splicing in things like Tyler Durden. <laughs> cool. Okay, we pitched it, everyone. We I think those are pretty it. successful pitches. Yeah. yeah. I think that that is the best that segment has gone so far. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so moving into favorite scenes. Mine's the murder investigation for the shooting of the cabbie at Washington and Maple. This this scene, uh, it first we get, I, I want to start yeah. it right when Ruffalo gets the call. And he reaches over and knocks over his bedside lamp, answers the phone and says, whoever this is, you owe me a new lamp. <laughs> and of course, it's his partner, right? His partner says, yeah, I'm going to come pick you up in a few minutes. He goes, let me describe to you the lamp that you're buying me. (laughs) (laughs) They just have this this easy rapport with each other. You know, he's already got the graham crackers for Toski. They're going back and Uh, forth. uh, Animal crackers. That's right. The animal animal crackers. crackers. I'm sorry. The animal crackers. You haven't seen this movie. (laughs) (laughs) But they finally get to the scene and there's this, this really cool bit right when they start to investigate. They walk up and then Toski walks away. A little bit to look over at where the cab when they see the fare book was supposed to be yeah and he looks over and then he looks back and he looks back over and then comes back and says there's no reason except for he must have seen a bystander and made him drive another block over and then it, immediately they're going back and forth and they're using another guy as like a prop so he shoots him and then he slumps right like what about this hand on his collar it's like okay fine there's all the blood there like why does he go around the front and it, it's just this quick investigate quick deductive work about the clues and how to process them that really make you know that these are professionals that you're working with these guys unlike some of the the bumbling of some of the newspaper men these guys are boots in the ground they know how to work a scene and i love it all kind of is culminates in that in that joke well the scene has that great joke where he uh he says, Anthony Edwards says it's his birthday. And Tossie says, well, happy birthday. So what do you want? The body or, like, body or the scene? He's like, well, you know, it's his birthday. I'll, I'll take the body. It's okay. Yeah. I, I just love that. And I, I love the confidence that I feel now towards Mark Ruffalo yeah. as Toski, knowing that he is now the third investigator. Yeah. That is a wonderfully set up scene, right? You don't have trust in Robert Downey. You do not have trust in Jake Gyllenhaal because he's a cartoonist. But you have trusted this guy. He knows his way around a scene. He knows how to put himself in other people's positions and try to figure out what's going on. Like, why would they possibly do it this way? You can see it in his eyes. He wants to get it. He wants to get it right. And yeah, that's really important for any detective. I think you've got to set that up from the get-go. And this does it beautifully. And it's so exciting, you know? 
That's what I love about it. It makes detective work exciting, which is hard to do Mm -hmm. in a movie. It's hard when just people standing around making some conjectures, especially being that this is in the like like early 70s. You know, we're just getting some crime labs up and going. You know, we're just kind of doing the fingerprint stuff on a, on a wide scale. And this is the the early the early work of it. I mean, now I think that scene would probably go a lot differently. Oh, yeah. Well, it's cool. Mark Ruffalo is such like, in one way, he's just such a good looking dude. Like, yeah. I wish I looked like Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> you know, like, I, I feel like everyone does. They see like, man, that guy, because he's also an everyman, like he walks around, he, he looks like he knows who he is in the world. Mm-hmm. And introducing him as like, he's our main detective. He's one of our main characters. You fit into his shoes perfectly mm-hmm. as well. But also like, I trust this guy. Yeah. Like you said, yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Great. Jesse, what do you got? Well, that that's a great scene, Vito. And that was basically my, my second. But my first favorite scene is the interview that they first have with Arthur Lee Allen. He's the primary suspect that Dave Toshi has as as the Zodiac killer. And then they for this scene, they go into his place of work, which is like a little factory. They're sitting in the break room. It's uh, Dave Toshi, his partner, and then one other guy. I can't remember who the cop from, The cop from Vallejo. The mm-hmm. cop from Vallejo, right. They're all sitting there waiting for him. And then when he comes in, like you know something's off about this guy. You know something's off about Lee. And they start calling him Arthur because that's his first name. The first thing he says is like, no one calls me Arthur. They call me Lee. He passes all this dialogue off as if someone normal was saying it. But there's also like this, I don't know, like he has that authoritativeness when he says, no one calls me Lee. You're not going to either. And it's almost like an implied threat. And it's just a normal conversation. And then he starts talking about bloody knives. Like... Everything from the way this guy is crossing his legs to the, like, uh, it's also creepy and some somehow intentional. Like, every movement of this guy's body is, it's frightening. Like, they, apparently Dave Toshi, the, the real-life detective, said when he first saw this guy, he thought he was the killer. Right? He's convinced. And when I first see this guy on screen, I think the same thing. And I think that's really hard to pull off. And then the... And the top of it all off, there's that the watch scene, the Zodiac watch that this guy is wearing. Man, I'm so convinced. Yeah, this scene is also just so electrifying. The way they're all talking and realizing things, and they're they're not able to communicate that with uh, the three detectives can't communicate that with each other. So it's just like small looks that they're giving each other. Ah, it's a beautifully choreographed, acted, and electrifying scene. Yeah, I love yeah. this scene also. It's definitely up there among my favorite f- favorites in the movie. Yeah, like up to that point of the movie, it's such a like complicated and difficult case, right? And all of a sudden, you're kind of being given everything, all yeah. like the evidence, and it's almost like, wow, can it be this easy? And like the, these three cops, like we're them, right? We're in their shoes, and like they're looking at each other, and and it's almost like the audience is like. Everyone's looking at each other like, wait a minute, did, is this, did it just, just solve the case here? Like, is this it? <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's this great moment where it's, it's almost like meta sort of thing where we're, we're in the place, we're, we're in the shoes of these police officers. It's great. Yeah. I love the way that they, he even introduces Lee because we, we see him, right, kind of coming in from the detective's point of view. 
But then it cuts to Lee's point of view, weirdly. And then it just, it's him looking at the detectives through the safety glass. And you get like this feeling that there is a predator that is entering the cage, Mm. right? The, 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 The place of confinement. And then it's even further exemplified when it's, you know, they say he's a child molester. Yeah. You know, he's the furthest on the outskirts of society that you can be, right? He's done like the most deplorable thing. And he's a serial killer. And we're all convinced of that right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That was my second. That was definitely my second scene. I, yeah. I've, I've like rewound that scene over and over and over <laughs> and over again just to like feel the tension build and build. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, you feel like they're in danger with him in the room. Like you're actually, he's bigger than all of them. Yeah. Um, he fills that room. He owns the room. And these are men who own rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're not Toski. He is a, uh, Star detective. Yeah, he's a star detective. We've got, you know, we've got people who are very good at their jobs, who know who they are in the world. They're able to put people in their place. And this guy comes in and he, it's almost like he's playing with them by giving them all of the circumstantial evidence, like on purpose. Yep. And then none of it, none of it. Well, he dangles it because he says, oh, my neighbor saw me come home that day. I forgot to mention that he died the next year. Yeah. And it's like immediately like, oh, like wait, so he, he had an alibi, but now the guy's dead. Why would you even say that? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Wild. It, it, this is actually something I was thinking about. Like Fincher does this a lot, right? Like the reveal of the killer in Seven, right? The walking into the police station. I'm not going to say who it is, right? Because you don't want to spoil that movie. <laughs> um, or then it's the uh, Mindhunter. Every single time one of those killers sits down for an interview, you always get this sense that he's very good at having people who are really dangerous or damaged walk into rooms and there's this invisible force going back and forth between the, the undeniable evil and then the force of either law or society that's going to try and fight them. Um, Yeah. That's a good way to put it, man. It's, it's good and evil. Like, like all of his movies come down to a moment there. And I mean, like it happens almost every episode in Mindhunter. I keep thinking of uh, what's his name? Ed Kemper. Mindhunter. I mean, Oh my gosh. Uh, it shows uh, if if you're if you like serial killers, <laughs> it's a good one. But also, um, no violence. <laughs> yeah, no violence. You see aftermath, but um, no, it's definitely that struggle and and the concern that you have in every one of those scenes is like it seems like the good is getting smaller. Yeah, it seems like the force of evil is pushing good to the wall. It's yeah, it's wild. Beautifully said. Yeah. What's uh? What's your favorite scene? Oh, that was my second favorite scene too. Um, <laughs> I think my first, the the one that I I have on top is uh, is the scene in the basement, the basement scene when Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. goes to the house of the, what is it? He's he's a guy who runs like a, a movie theater. Yeah, he's the organist for the silent movie theater. Right, organist for the silent movie theater. He, he goes there. He gets a tip from someone that this guy is the Zodiac killer. He or his good friend Rick. Rick, that's right. So this guy's this guy's Vaughn, and right. Jake Gyllenhaal goes to investigate Rick, who is the projectionist, off the tip from Wallace Penny, who called uh, Sherwood. Right, but then someone else is tipping him that Vaughn is actually the uh, the killer as well. Yeah. So you know this is he's walking into the lion's den. So he's supposed to meet this guy in front of the uh, the movie theater. They're going to go get coffee, and this guy says, "Come to my house," and 
I mean, wouldn't you go to the guy's house who might be a serial killer? Like, that sounds like a wise thing to do. Maybe if I was a Boy Scout. <laughs> so he goes in and it's well, just like, it's this. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. He, he doesn't know he's going to be the serial killer. He thinks the guy that he's Rick. Rick, that guy's friend. His friend. Yeah. Right. Because so he thinks well, this guy is safe. He's still yeah. making a dumb decision, but he thinks this guy's safe, is my point. Because Wallace yeah. Penny wants to talk about Vaughn. But Gyllenhaal wants to talk about Rick because of the, the the handwriting sample, right? Right. So he thinks the handwriting sample matches Rick did that. It's Rick. Yeah. This guy's going to help me with Rick. <laughs> yeah. But it's still really dumb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it is because like they're friends and and uh, he goes in and they're sitting in the house and he, they, he starts like explaining all of his theories and stuff. And he says like the movie theater poster matches this. And the guy says, I write all the posters oh. and you just are suddenly terrified and you, and you realize this is that, and they go down into the basement oh. and he says, follow me. You can come see like, this is this whole movie. You've been waiting for the moment, like the, the horror moment it's been building. You've got this tension the whole time and you're like, this feels like a horror movie. Yeah. And then this is kind of the release. Like he's kind of giving you that release. Like it is the horror movie because he's down there. And he starts hearing footsteps up above him. Ugh. And like you see shadows moving in the floorboards above him. And it's like this darkly lit, like, like I thought of the basement in, in Breaking Bad where oh, know, yeah. some bad yeah. shit goes down. And uh, and he says, you sure you live alone? And the guy says, do you want to check? Like, he says, <laughs> no. And he tries to, and then he runs, <laughs> he turns off the light. It goes dark. Jake Gyllenhaal like runs up the stairs, tries to get out and the door's locked. I mean, this is this is a classic horror movie sort of moment, but then at the same time, like like that's this is the horror movie moment where the dude dies and like things get revealed. No one dies, nothing gets revealed. You're as much in the dark as you've been the whole time. It's amazing, and and, and I, uh, I I loved it because it, it's built up that whole time to giving you this moment. And then it's sort of, it's like, it's given it to you and then it wrenches it away. Right. Um, I love it. I love it. It's uh, a really good scene. Yeah. It's a really good scene. It's terrifying. Yeah. That is a really scary scene. Like, you're like, what are you doing down there, dude? You're a cartoonist. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like, it it builds up on on that that, uh, scene, the, the bit from the letter, right? When he talks about the basement in California and like all that information all this really quickly, a bunch of clues lock into place and you're like, Oh, he's not, not, safe. not many people have basements in California. I do. <laughs> <laughs> you have a basement Vito. I, I am in my basement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> currently. What does that say about you? Uh, you're the Zodiac. I, I have a couple of hand-drawn posters. If you'd like to come see. <laughs> nice. um, how about you, Henry? What's, what's your favorite? Okay, so definitely honorable mention for any scene with Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal kind of bantering away. Hilarious. I just love all of them. I think the the Aqua Velva scene is like... <laughs> oh my gosh. Probably the best of those. Um, I think that scene is where uh, Jake Gyllenhaal actually has like a Code Breakers book and, and RGJ is like, you carry that around <laughs> with you? <laughs> you know, it's just it's so great. Um, but definitely my favorite scene is near the end, it's the diner scene where uh, Toski and Grace Smith, Smith essentially solve the case, you know? Um, yeah, the first time I saw the movie, 
this scene kind of turned me off, right? Because it was it's sort of set up as like the climax of the movie. And like I was saying before, I was looking forward to, I don't know, like some sort of like slasher movie fight or like a courtroom scene where the, the judge bangs the gavel and says, you're guilty here. We're sending you to jail, you know? And, yeah. and you know, we don't get that. We don't get those like Hollywood cliches at all. Right. Instead, we get this really quiet scene, just two characters talking. It's really dark, you know, going back to the whole dimly lit thing. It's not a whole lot of lighting. There's like no one else there except maybe like a waitress who hands them the bill just really quiet and just two guys talking. That's all it is. And I'm telling you, like, th this is the brilliance of David Fincher, right? He's taking this super quiet scene, which is set up as like the climax of the movie. It shouldn't really work. And yet it has the, the narrow narrative explosiveness of a, like a big budget action blockbuster, you know, like the, the excitement level of that scene is like comparable to, Thanos fighting the Avengers in Endgame, right? Like it's yeah. like in incredible like effects driven storytelling versus this. But like, man, I, I got to tell you, when I watched the scene again, I, I got like that level of excitement of oh my god, you know, there's this like incredible like light bulb moment, right? Um, and just really enjoyable watching these two characters just put all the pieces in place and, and like the whole movie just kind of comes together at that moment. Right. So, so brilliant. Love it so much. And Oh, real quick, just adding on to the greatness of Mark Ruffalo. I did want to call that out too. You know, we were comparing Downey, uh, his, his like MCU acting versus this movie, how, how it's a little different total 180 with Ruffalo, right? Like his Bruce Banner, <laughs> is like this kind of socially awkward, brilliant doofus, you know? In this mm -hmm. movie, he is super cool. You, you oh, can't yeah. get any cooler than than Ruffalo <laughs> as as Detective Toski, right? And I can't believe it's like the same actor, right? Um, and it's pretty pretty amazing. Like, he's he's great as Banner. Maybe not as good as Norton. Let's put, put that out there, as I was saying. <laughs> but he's, he's great as Banner, but, uh, you know even greater in this role and it's such a different role, you know, and, and, you know, I've been rewatching Marvel movies so much. I'm so used to him as being this kind of doofus character. So to see him, to see him like this is, is, is awesome. It's, it's a real treat to see this performance. Yeah. It, it makes me miss actor Mark Ruffalo, you know, yeah. being like comparing this or, or, you know, years later with spotlight playing uh, Resendez, you know, I, I want this guy back. I, I yeah. love him. I think he, I think he's great in those Marvel movies. But man, I I just miss seeing Ruffalo turn up and just become somebody. Yeah, totally. I, I love I love this scene too, Henry. I love. Um, I mean, I part of what I think I love about Ruffalo as an actor is the way he just kind of tosses lines off that are just freaking incredible. Like his sarcastic remark about, "Oh yeah, no need for due process, right?" Mm -hmm. Like that is is such a phenomenal like line in and it's defining to his character like you see in that one line who this guy is um in 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 that little scene that is the climax of the movie is incredible i, I it's, it's amazing i mean like it speaks to the writing um as much as anything but the way he he brings his own i don't know his his self to the the character is 
is really cool. There's this really, really cool, cool thing so, where where Ruffalo kind of does this thing with his hands. You guys notice that during that scene mm-hmm. where he's kind of breaking it down? I don't know what that is, but yeah, it really adds to the scene. Like you're saying, that the writing's brilliant, but uh, the performance is 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 brilliant also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they use salt pepper shakers. They come Love out that. too. Yeah, fifty yards away. That's the moment. That's the moment when they yeah. talk about how Darlene oh, worked yeah. like a block away from where Lee lived. Yeah. And yeah, they were using salt and pepper shakers. So you're you're taking. I've walked it. Yeah, like th- oh. this this huge moment, and it's just two guys talking using salt and pepper shakers. That's it. Like that's that's yep. that's yeah. filmmaking right there. Yeah. <laughs> awesome scene. Yeah. Also, Ooh. also it just highlights. I remember that scene highlighting the, the predicament that they're really in was just like, uh, yeah, we have all this stuff. Doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like we can yeah. get this guy. And Ruffalo. The mountain of circumstantial evidence is so high, but it doesn't matter. It's all circumstantial. Yeah. They got nothing else. And it's like, what? Really? Yeah, and they make it like abundantly clear, like it's nothing we could do. Yeah, that's it. Mark Ruffalo like plays that off so well. It's like, yes, I want this, but I can't because we don't have it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great scene. That's another aspect of why I didn't like it so much before because I felt like not gratified. I'm like, oh, justice is not being served. But then upon subsequent viewings, you realize, well, that's not really what this is about. It's not putting the bad guy away and tossing him in jail. It's, it's just determining the truth behind everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's that search for truth, right? It's, it's that detecting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how how do we feel about just, just one, how do we feel about the scene when Graysmith confronts Lee or meets him? Is this the final, final scene of the movie? Right, it's, it's the penultimate scene. Penultimate scene, yeah, because yeah. Michelle points him out. But I mean, it's the yeah. conclusion for Graysmith's arc, right? Yeah, because he he oh, he told his wife, yeah, I just need to look him in the eyes and know it was him. Yeah. And now that they laid out all the stuff in the diner, he got to go do it. And Lee looks back at him with nothing. I feel like there was a little bit of terror there. I, like he was seen. I, he was I, finally seen. Yeah, I feel like I got you know, that. if someone if someone walked into a, a room and stared at me, I would also stare back at them. And I would be angry and scared. That's true. But he knows. He knows who Graysmith is. Yeah. There was a look of knowing. If he did it. That's right. If he did it. Well, I think think that Fincher thinks that that he did it. I think you're right. And he put that into uh, into Lee's reaction. Um, Like, like it, it felt like he felt beaten. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, justice isn't served. Like it's so. Yeah. I, I was watching a little documentary about this, and they basically said that they have no idea if Arthur Lee Allen is the one that killed her. Uh, but he said what they're doing is they are trying to make this movie from uh, what's the cartoonist's name? Gray Smith. Gray Smith. They're trying to make this movie from Gray Smith's point of view, and Gray Smith is convinced that Arthur Lee Allen is is the murder in fact he has a book called zodiac uh, who did it basically right, um yeah. and going into arthur lee allen's like childhood and all that and, like diving in to his mind um so they're making this movie based off of his book convinced that arthur lee allen is is the villain 
is Zodiac, and they portray it that way. Um, so I'm not sure if it's Fincher actually believes it, or if it's like for the sake of this story and this person's word, we're making it this way. That's a good point. That's a good point. That makes sense. That is a good point. Man. Yeah, I don't know if Fincher himself believes it either, but I do agree with you guys that Robert Graysmith sure as heck believed it at the end of this movie, <laughs> right? And it's a big payoff, right? Like you guys were saying earlier in the movie, he he says, "All I want to do is is look at him and know," right? Yeah. And I felt like we got that moment. Yeah, he looked yeah. and he knew, and we know too, at least for the sake of this story. Yeah. Yeah, because um, now after watching this movie, I'm going to be listening to so many podcasts, and so many audiobooks about the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> There's so many of them. I, I I do like how they do like the final nail in the coffin with Mike Majot, who also served as like a consultant on the movie. And I also like though how they they did try and be a little fair by acknowledging the DNA evidence in the postscript, right? Mm-hmm. Saying it didn't match Lee Allen, and also that Lee Allen is dead and has been dead for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Might go down as something we never solve. But yeah. they are retesting. This, they are retesting those stamps. They started doing that a couple of years ago. <laughs> and we have not gotten those results <laughs> as of this month. That was asked and nobody knows anything. Yeah. All right. So moving then into how this ties into our detective movies as a whole. Yeah. So there's a pretty obvious question. How is this a detective movie? Well, there's a detective in it. There there's is a couple that, of detectives. Yeah, there's a lot of detectives. Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot of people who are trying to detect. Indeed. And and some of them are doing it are doing it pretty badly for a while. <laughs> and then do a little bit better. But uh, I think that maybe in the end they turn out to be better detectives than they do cartoonists. Because if you remember, horrid, horrid, not so horrid. Let's go with not so horrid. <laughs> right. <laughs> but who in a, let's Jesse, who in your opinion does the best detecting in this movie? Ooh. Uh, at a technical level, it's uh, it's Dave Tashi. Uh, that dude is, I think we're pointing it out, he's a professional. He's a guy uh, who's doing this every day. You, you really get the sense when in that scene, in your favorite scene, when he goes and and does the, the taxi cab analysis, that he is doing that like every day. Every day he's out there making those conjectures, figuring that out. And he's he's a pro. He's coming to this in like seconds, right? Whereas um, I think I think my runner, you know, obviously the runner up would be uh, <laughs> runner up is Gray Smith. He's not a pro. I think he's just really good at this because he's obsessing over it. And yeah. unlike Tashi, he doesn't have to solve 200 murders in a year. He just has to solve these few. Yeah. So that's that's my take about who is the best detecting. How about, I'm just going to say I probably agree, just just to get my thing out there. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about you, Henry? Yeah, I agree. I think Toski is the better detective compared with Graysmith. I mean, literally, he is a detective, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, now, if the question was worded a little differently, you know, like, who who is the greatest truth seeker of the movie? I oh, might yeah. go with Graysmith there, but... You know, Gray Smith didn't have the understanding of the law that Tusky had. You know, Tusky knew, like, gotta have the evidence. Like, all the circumstantial stuff, it doesn't mean much of anything in a court of law, right? So he, he understood these things, and Gray Smith didn't. But what Gray Smith had was this obsession, right, 
um, I think it's pretty telling that throughout the movie, uh, Toski has a line, right? He does not sacrifice his family life, right? There's this cool scene where he just hangs up the phone. His wife is on the phone with Graysmith and just and Toski just hangs it up very rudely, right? <laughs> right. He, he has a line. Graysmith does not have that line. He 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 ruins his family essentially, right? Um, because of this obsession. But because he's so obsessive, it, it makes him the better, like I said, quote unquote, truth seeker, right? Nothing's gonna stop him from from finding out the truth. Uh, so yeah, the better detective Toski, the better truth seeker, Craig Smith. Uh, I think that's a, fa- a, a fascinating point, Henry. I was thinking about it too. Um... I mean, Paul Allen has to be in here, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, a little bit because, oh, Paul Avery, sorry. Yeah. Not Allen. Uh, That's the other guy. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of names in this movie. (laughs) Because he's also detecting here, and he does some really good work. Like, you know, you see, it's interesting because I I think both Toski and and, and Avery, they come to the same conclusions at around the same time. Mm-hmm. But then Avery just like descends into alcoholism and like loses his mind, basically. Whereas Toski, at kind of this the same time, is no longer able to focus on this because both of them are coming at it from a job perspective. Like, I get paid to do this. And Avery, like, he's he's way more cynical about it. Like, there's, uh, like, he, he keeps, like, trying to figure out what um, Graysmith's angle is. Like, yeah. like where are you? This is good business for anyone, everyone except you. Except for you. Like, why are you doing this? Um, and then at the end, uh, at, in his final scene, he says he's very unkind to, yeah. to Graysmith. Yeah. Do you remember what he says? Um, yeah, he just, I don't remember ver- verbatim, but he, yeah, really, okay. he really insults him. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he, he basically says, what have you done? Right. I, I, I reported on the story Toski is the one that investigated it. You loomed at my desk and went. <laughs> Am I being unkind? Library and, <laughs> and went to the library. library. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. fucking <laughs> the fucking library. The fucking library. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking there. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, well. It's interesting because they're juxtaposed. Uh, I think Toski is obviously the best. Like he's he's the better detective. He is a detective, but Avery, like he's smart. Like he knows how to hunt down leads and find people who will tell him stuff. Mm-hmm. Which I, I thought was a fac- fascinating juxtaposition and almost like this this uh, triangle or, or pyramid of of these three people where where Graysmith, he's just the obsessed person. So he's able to take the work that these other guys have done from their jobs, um, ruin his life because of it, and figure out who it is. Yeah. Which I, is like an interesting... I, I think, don't know if it's I think like maybe a there's point, like There's but... like a good step over there to, to another topic. So Graysmith... He ruins his life because he takes he takes this personally. Yeah. Right. He's not it's not his job in any way. No one's asking him to do it. It's just him. And he he, he detonates his life um, in a very real way. And it was later able, we know, through the postscript in real life to, to put it back together in some way. Mm-hmm. And it, it's even shown like from Chloe Seventy, his, his wife, that she still supports him. But there's just something wrong with him that he can't let it go. But, you know, the tagline for this movie is there's more than one way to lose your life to a killer. And the way that he loses it is through making his life the killer, right? That's that's all he has room for. Um, and like what you're saying, like, with Avery, what do you think happens there? Why, why do you think he detonates if this is his job? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a part of it is the fact that I mean, like the guy you see that he's already on this path, right? Like he's he's crazy. Like he likes to party. He's doing gonzo journalism. You know, yeah. like this this is a guy who's going to end up here. I think. Yeah. Um, at least you know as he's portrayed in the movie. Um, but I think that the thing that really sh- sends him off is when he gets the death threat, right? Mm-hmm. Like he has a death threat directly from the Zodiac killer, and that. Mm-hmm. He gets a gun. He starts like doing stuff that's really. I don't think that he would have done a year earlier in the movie um, when he goes down to Riverside. He drives all night to Riverside from the Bay Area. That's Ugh. not a sane thing. To do. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love his button, and I like when it when it cuts to him and the the editorial guy is like you know screaming at him as editor. <laughs> He's like, "What? Oh, you're going to get rid of me?" The mocked man. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. What 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 do you like? So then, looking at our other characters, who's all their lives are ruined because it's not just our trio, right? But like, how do you guys feel about is is Toski's life ruined? Is is it detonated by this pursuit of this killer? Well, he gets accused of writing the one of the Zodiac letters and then gets fired, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, his career tanks because of uh, because of Zodiac. So, uh, yeah, in some way he does. Not as much as everybody else because he's chosen to distance himself. Um, and then there's also his partner who transfers because he can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Zodiac is like, he he's serial killing from a distance at this point. Yeah. Because everybody's lives is like, it's almost like Zodiac gets a gets his kicks from just like tormenting these people right it's almost like he's doing this intentionally which is a weird thing i hadn't even thought of until right now but yeah it almost seems like it's part of part of the killing for him all the all the letters all the uh yeah to to like stoke the fear and the obsession over him yeah. all talking about like how how he wants to be in a movie you know who would play me if if i was in a movie um <sighs> like a drug right he's a he's a uh, narcissist you know i bet when he was thinking of that he wasn't thinking of john carroll lynch no (laughs) (laughs) hey i'd love to have john carroll lynch play me in a movie that'd be awesome i mean be in the hands of a veteran actor (laughs) it's just not the same as saying brad pitt exactly (laughs) or mark mark ruffalo or rdj yeah (laughs) even jake gyllenhaal even jake gyllenhaal would be great um, but then, okay. So then it, he's ruining all these lives and he's using the news to do this. Yeah. Right. He's using, especially in the, the late sixties, early seventies in, in that middle of the 20th century, we looked to the news for everything. Like that was where our parents got everything that they knew that was factual. You could trust the paper. And, and now we, I, I hate to point this out to anyone. It's really hard to know who we can trust. Mm-hmm. In terms of any outlet, any news source, um, some people rely exclusively on Facebook. I don't recommend that. <laughs> yeah, Henry, you you kind of posed this question, and I would like to ask it of you first. Then, like, how does this story of newspapermen and detectives feel to you now, given our current circumstances? Yeah, to me, it was a real breath of fresh air. You know, to see people who are really actively and obsessively trying to determine the truth, it's kind of a foreign concept these days, right? Um, (laughs) And just really cool to see people doing this, you know? And it's interesting that in the movie, 
you know, uh, the media, in this case, the San Francisco Chronicle, they're the kind of sensationalist, like media hype storytellers of this story, right? But they're, I mean, they're a legitimate news organization, especially when you compare it to, you know, what's going on today. But then, you know, beyond the the SF Chronicle, like what, what Toski and Grace Smith are doing in this movie, I'm like, man, if, if people, if the people of today could like place just an ounce of, of this sort of investigativeness, rather than just like reading headlines, skimming articles, uh, like it's almost like the world would be a much better place, right? Um, this goes beyond like reading the headlines and reading the article. Like we right now, we have a problem with just getting past the headline, right? How about finishing yeah. the article? Okay, that's number one. But look at what these guys are doing. Like Robert Graysmith is digging through boxes in in the the back room of the Vallejo Police Department. You know, he's he's like determined to to find the truth, right? And uh, what a one eighty from so much of what we're seeing today. You know, and uh, you know, we talked about nostalgia before maybe there's a little nostalgia with with this too right looking at a time when people valued uh the media and people valued like uh like fact checking you know and 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 getting getting the real story you know and just to see it play out like this is is very satisfying yeah yeah it, it but it's also really interesting too because it's like we're almost seeing the start of the media being manipulated. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but you know, and they're being manipulated because the threat is that if they don't do it, they could be responsible for lives. And then there's that that sort of like like looking around the ranks, like call up the other papers. What are they doing? They're like, okay, well, they're not going to run it. Well, they're running it on page four. It's like, okay, cool. So if we don't run it first page, it's not going to be our fault that those people are dead. And it, it feels like it already feels like one step further away from all the president's men, for example, right? Like that one felt like true blue newspaper. This, these are the guardians of fact. These are the people that tell us what is actually happening. But now we're, we're just a little bit further away. Yeah. It's still refreshing, even considering today. Yeah. But it's funny to see, I'm sure this isn't just the start, but it's funny to see a start. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? You seem like you it, wanted to say something. No, I, just to agree, like, yeah, it's it's a watershed moment. This is a conversation we have today. I mean, it's something that we we talk a lot about with when it comes to uh, some of the horrific acts of violence that have occurred in the last 10 years. You know, since this movie has come out, like, do you publish the names of the people who, who carried them out? Yeah. Like, this is giving Are publicity. Are you referring to, like, like mass shootings? And yeah, like such? mass shootings and, and that sort of thing. Like, like you know, people people do this for attention. Um, if you give people attention for it, it'll keep happening maybe. I don't um, know. But, but yeah, you, you don't know. Yeah. But at the same time, I also, I also feel you, Henry. I mean, it's, um, it is refreshing. Like these, I, I feel the same way. Everything now comes with a bent. Um, it's, yeah. it's coming at us from an angle, any news source, like they are on the payroll of, of someone. Um, and they're, they're bringing you something that I like, trustworthiness of news sources is something that's totally out the window. It feels like we all have to be Robert Graysmith yeah. about everything, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, all right, I saw it over here. 
Am I seeing it over here? Are the, is the story the same or the key details the same? Okay, yeah. let's find another one. Let's find another yeah. one. Let's find another one. Like and, find all the differences. And, which is what the news yeah. used to be doing is making it so we didn't have to do that. Yep. <laughs> they used to give us the facts straight up. Yeah. And they used to say it. They used to be like the sign off of some of these people. And now I just, now I don't have any of that, any of that, that trust in those places. And I wish, I wish I did because man, it must've been nice to be able to open up your paper and, and, and feel like this is the event that occurred. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. maybe that's just like a little bit of, of, I don't know, like looking, you know, rosy, rosy, uh, rose colored glass, looking at the past with rose colored glasses. There we go. Got the expression out. Sure. Sure. I mean, people have always tried to put their bent on everything. Um, the, you know, victors have always written the history books and all that sort of stuff, but it does I mean, feel. I don't, this, this is where I got a zag guys. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt like equally pessimistic about this news organization. I think there are people like Ray Smith who's genuinely fine. Who's like the, the true truth seeker, you know? And then there's Tashi that also another truth seeker is just too bogged down to actually go seek this one particular truth. And there's Paul Avery who is, uh, and the rest of those editors at the, at the place. And Avery kind of wants it, but you know, when he goes up to uh gray Smith's like, Hey, what's your angle? What are you getting out of this? Right? Because they're a newspaper. They're getting more newspapers sold by printing this stuff. Right. That's why they're print And they'll continue to print, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is that the Zodiac is saying and take it as fact uh, that he's the one that's committing these murders. Right. Um, so it's like, I, I don't know. They, they just seem to be a, a money grabbing organization in this to me. Yeah. Yeah. They, pu- they like, they publish the, it's kind of weird. They publish the, um, the, the note from the Zodiac is like a fun game, you know, like, Hey, help us figure out this cipher. I mean, it's not quite, but it's kind of like the crossword puzzle, you know? Yeah. I still they, they feel do, like it's... stop it eventually, just, just yeah. to give full credit to, yeah. to them. They, they, they don't publish every one of them. They do stop. Yeah, and, and, and I feel like it's... They, they give us... A, the movie spends a lot of time in that, in that room, you know, with them as they're, as they're laboring over what to do. In the bullpen. And, like, you see them... It looks like they're they're really considering it, and they they're like, well, it could help us sell papers, and like that's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> um, like, like I'm I'm sorry I thought that, but I did because this is what I do. I think about how to sell papers, and that's kind of I, I feel like that's something that like part of why Robert Downey Jr. goes down the black hole too is because he's like he's a he's got this cynical he like both wants the truth, but he's also like. Everything yeah. about truth finding is is just a job, and it's all about selling stuff. So he's like, mm. I don't know. Yeah, I see that I, clash yeah. is definitely there. Um, yeah, and then comparing it to like modern day, I just think it's worse because, like, you know, there's not just one source of news. There's like a thousand, and they're all competing with each other to have the flashiest headlines the most clickbait headlines, you know, whatever it takes to get you there, uh, which makes it far worse now. But uh, I still, I guess I see the seeds of that in everything that they're doing. Yeah. That, that, that's my more pessimistic view. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> that's a solid point. I do agree that at the end of the day, Paul Avery was like totally self-serving. Like he was more interested in 
and getting his name out there and selling more papers than the actual truth. But at the same time, you know, he did adhere to basic journalistic standards, right? Um, so like it's you're true. saying, Jesse, it's it's not great, but it's a whole lot worse today. Yeah. It's like the battle started then. Yeah. And maybe it's been lost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I imagine the battle started, sad. you know, however many thousand years ago people started existing. Right. Yeah. No, no. I think the decline of civilization began then. <laughs> you know, the day it was formed was the best day. You know, it is, is now is now the time to announce not your father's news where we being the professional dads that we are write blogs about news. Listen That's here, I'm going to tell the, you the yeah. state of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what's like going on in Egypt today. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to plug something, and this isn't an ad, but um, oh, wow. this is this is why I, I read. I, there's a there's a email that I get every every day. It's an email blast from this group called the Flipside, and they uh, they grab news articles from places that are typically right and typically left-leaning and they'll grab libertarian takes as well from those places and just kind of put it together, put them next to each other on this email blast with links to go to them. I really love it because it gives you that ability to see these different viewpoints at least and see how different people are taking it. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I recommend to everybody, no matter what your beliefs, I think it's fantastic I love these people. These are great people who are doing it too. What is it again, Mike? The flip side. Yeah. The flip side. The flip yeah, side. I love and, the flip uh, side. If they also, they have these mugs that have a bear on them. <laughs> and my kids love that mug. They love that I have this mug. They're like, daddy's drinking out of his bear coffee mug today. It's great. Is, is there a bull on the other side? No, it's just a bear. Uh, what the heck? It's just a bear. It's so great. He's got a monocle and he's also drinking coffee. Is this like, his mug have a bear on it? <laughs> Yes. That would be amazing. It's bears all the way down, guys. Uh, but yeah, if, if you're interested in that, I highly recommend you check it out. Nice. Excellent. The flip side. All right. Uh, the time has come, everyone. This has been a fantastic discussion. Um, but we need to ask, is this a dad movie? Is it a dad movie? Um, I'm going to say that for me, it, it is. Uh, for me, for all the reasons of it being a newspaper movie... For all it being a David Fincher movie, for all of it being so nostalgic for me, it, it's a dad movie. What, what, what do you think, Mike? Is this a dad movie? I think it is, yes. I'm going to put a solid stamp of dad movie on this one because, um, I mean, it's a good movie. And it's a movie that came out uh, when we were, like, coming into our own. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I was 17 when it came out. And uh, as, as sort of people... But then sort of the subject matter is is huge. Like it's this this movie about a, a, a very important historical event. I think for actually a lot of the reasons that we were just talking about with in terms of old media and sort of the confrontation with the modern world that it had there, mm-hmm. um, how we've gotten to where we are. I love these. I love movies that are about old, old places and, and bring that in. It's kind of a road trip movie. It's a bit of a road trip movie. They, they, don't road, they road trip. Yeah. 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 Oh, you're always a sucker for the road I'm trip. I'm a sucker for the road <laughs> oh, trip. I love, yeah. road I, trips, love yeah. I love seeing, I, I mean, you know, it's in California. It's in places that, uh, you know, I can be like, Hey, that's uh, you know, that's in Salinas there. I, that's I've, right. You know, I've driven through there. So you can so, say yeah. that's Riverside. You're like, yep. Dark, <laughs> wet. Yep. You, you can pause <laughs> the movie and be like, okay, you need to understand what it is 
to drive from San Francisco, California to Riverside in the night. <laughs> yeah. This guy was doing tons of cocaine. I, I, tons I, pulled, it of up, cocaine. I pulled it up in my Google Maps and showed my wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's a doubt. And, and I mean, it's so good. The, the acting, um, the, the story, the writing, uh, so fantastic. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and also say this this isn't just a dad movie. This belongs on like the the pinnacle of dad movies. Yeah. Even if it's not my personal favorite film, it's hard to think of a film that's more dad than this. It's about some dudes trying to figure out who a killer is. It's about history. It's about you know, and also like there's a California aspect of us because we all grew up in California. So like that that's a big part of it too. And it's it's Ruffalo, Gyllenhaal, and and one other person that I just forgot. Robert Downey. Yeah, those are all like dad actors to some degree. Oh, yeah. yeah, like oh for sure. And their chemistry is so fun, and there's like witty dialogue, um, witty snappy dialogue throughout. And it's about detectives finding the truth. It's like de- I, it's uh, about the truth, detectives. Yeah. Yeah, as as a dad, this like what I can't think of more dad qualities to put in here. Maybe besides family, which this is also about to some degree, uh, maybe it's a slightly less one, but it's definitely there. Yeah, total dad movie. Henry, uh, yeah. So first off, a a bit of a clarification on like what is a dad movie? <laughs> I'm, new, I'm new to your guys' show, but to me there's kind of two different definitions in my mind. The first is a movie that you can kind of pass along to your children, kind of like what we were doing earlier with the pitches and stuff. And strictly off of that definition, I don't know if this is so much the classic definition of that kind of dad movie. Like a movie like Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark, that would be in, in that category, right? Where you loved it as a kid, you want to like pass the torch on to your kid and maybe they'll pass it on to their kid. And then every Christmas day, you put it on. I, I don't know if Zodiac is that kind of movie. <laughs> you put on Zodiac with grandma and grandpa sitting next to the fire. I don't know about that. Um, that said, you know, I, as we talked about, I, I still would love to pass this movie along to my son if he's willing to take my advice. And I think like you guys are saying, it absolutely nails the second category of what I consider a dad movie. And that's kind of like the classic uh, kind of commonly accepted definition of a dad movie, a movie that people who happen to be dads enjoy. Right. So, I mean, this, this, like this nails all of the, the the major criteria, I think, uh, primarily two big things. It, it it contains a male protagonist who solves problems despite being surrounded by incompetence and doubters. Right, that's oh, a I big a one. Right? For that. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like a movie like uh, there, there's a recent Tom Hanks movie, Greyhound. Have you guys mm-hmm. seen that one? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's I've like parts of it. It's like all problem solving, it's, right? <laughs> it's like textbook definition of dad movie. So it, it has that aspect. But the other big, big aspect of that movie that Zodiac also has, it's a period movie. 
Uh, a huge staple of like the classic dad movie, right? And that taps into the nostalgia of it. You know, as we get older, we we look more fondly at the past, kind of what you're saying, Mike, about the rose colored colored glasses and all that. So yeah, period piece and and the male protagonist like kind of getting shit done while he's surrounded by like a bunch of idiots. Yeah, this this is this is it, man. This is this nails that. <laughs> it's basically dad life summed up right there. <laughs> why is everyone so incompetent except us? Exactly. <laughs> and why are you so incompetent when it comes to exactly, us? Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I love that you yeah. that you came on the show with such a thoughtful take, Henry. Thank yeah. you so oh, much. Yeah. I feel so gratified. Yeah. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah, awesome. I think. I mean, I guess I don't say it as often, but that is generally how I classify dad movies. It's either one or the other. It's either something for the kids, um, so which is why I also have no problem saying like Lion King is a dad movie. Not because I sit around using my time to watch Lion King, because I need to pass it on, right? And I really want to. Um, and then movies like this, where it's just like, yeah, this is for me, guys. I, I don't care what you kids are doing. This yeah. is for me. And uh, yeah. that's... Zodiac probably solidly fits in there. It doesn't. I, I, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to pass this on to my kids, but it would be really neat if they watched it with me. Like, I, yeah. I want them to have an appreciation for it. Like, I, I don't think, know if yeah. they're going to like, this isn't a movie where I think like, like something like star Wars. I don't know. What's a, what's a star Wars is something that I think our parents passed on to us. Right. Because it was something that was amazing for them. And it's something that was amazing for us too. It was incredible. And there's other movies like that now. Like, I don't know. Maybe the Marvel movies will be something Probably. like that. Um, Batman. Oh, definitely. Batman definitely definitely like three one. Pirates movies. <laughs> definitely At least one. one. But, uh, uh, definitely one Pirates movie. <laughs> um, maybe three. But then there's movies like this, which, which yeah, it's, it's not so much about them loving it as it is as much like this is generationally defining because this is, this is a huge movie from when we grew up. It's something that sort of defined the people that are around us. Um, and it's also, you know, something about this time, like it hit all those things that you're speaking of. So I, I feel like that's another sort of category. It's like the ones that you want them to love and the ones you want them to acknowledge and to like recognize the value because they're going to take that and then develop their own canon of, of valuable movies. This movie's leaning so heavily on other movies like it from before it leans on, um, you know, as it should, as, as everything does now, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of just the way art works. Right. Yeah. And so this will be a movie that, you know, as, as they're growing up, I think movies will come out for them. That'll be kind of touching back to this. Yeah. Well said, well said. I love it. Um, Henry, could you tell us where we can Listen to, follow, interact with the Comic Sauce Podcast. Absolutely. You can find the Comic Sauce Podcast at Comic Sauce Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Come check us out. Nice, nice. And we, uh, we've we shared your pages before, and we will delightfully do so every time that we hear an episode we really love. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was, it was a joy. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Henry. Yeah, great being here. Well, for all of us at Not Your Father's Movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. And I'm Henry. All right. Have a good night.